Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as we continue our series through the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, looking this morning at the subject matter, God's all-sufficient grace. God's all-sufficient grace. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, and we'll just be looking at the first uh, 10, 10 verses out of this chapter this morning. Now, as you find your place in God's Word, I do want to briefly mention to you about tonight. If you're meeting in a Sunday school fellowship or some other fellowship in your home... Uh, we do want to ask one individual there, I would assume the host in each place will be in charge of, of showing the videos at halftime uh, put out by the players and coaches, their testimony of uh, how they came to faith in Christ with the evangelistic invitation. And uh, if the host would draw a net there and invite any in your group that may need to make a decision for Christ. And if somebody in your group does, if you would please record their name and phone number and address information because we want to follow up with them. We want to get some discipleship literature into their hands and, and assign somebody to follow up with them who can sort of keep them accountable, getting started. So please let us know if somebody in your group this evening does in fact make a decision. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, God's all-sufficient grace. Paul says there, beginning in verse 1, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows and he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful today for the subject of God's grace that we find in your word. I think of that verse in 
The book of Isaiah that says, All we like sheep had gone astray, but the Lord laid on him, on the Lord Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Father, that's grace. The fact that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, I want to pray if there is even one here today who has never had that saving experience of your grace that your Holy Spirit might be pleased today to open their eyes, their minds, their hearts that they would come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And Father, for those who have made that decision but maybe they're going through some trial or tribulation today and quite frankly, it's almost more than they can bear and they need help and strength and wisdom. I pray that this message would be an encouragement to them that in dependence upon you, they will find all that they need and even more. Lord, use this message today. Hide me behind the cross. May Christ and Christ alone be high and lifted up. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Folks, you know, the Bible has a lot to say to us about grace. In fact, it is a word that is found no less than about 150 times in the New Testament alone. What a tremendous word it is and what a marvelous subject that it is. Now, the more that you learn about God's grace, the more you've got to agree with John Newton. As he wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace, probably the best known and loved hymn the world over. And what he says about grace in that hymn, you've got to agree with. I want you to listen uh, to some of the words in that hymn. He says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Amen. Beautiful words. Tremendous hymn. Folks, what I want us to see today is that God's grace is always sufficient. In fact, it's always more than sufficient. In either life or death, God's grace is sufficient. As we turn to 2 Corinthians 12 this morning, I want us to look at Paul and the circumstances in which God declared to him that his grace is sufficient. 
Dr. John MacArthur writes that 2 Corinthians chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 are probably the most emotionally charged section of Scripture that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. It was written at some of the most distressing and troubling times in his life. But Paul's circumstances placed him in a position to learn that God's grace is always sufficient. Now what we see here and what we learn here is that the Christian is not exempt from the troubles and trials of life. Folks, we live in a fallen world and believers go through the very same kinds of experiences that the rest of the world goes through. But I think one of the greatest testimonies that we can have to unbelievers is that as we go through these trials, as we go through these valleys, we're not alone. God is with us. He gives us wisdom. He gives us direction. And He brings us out the other side of that valley with a more steadfast and abundant hope than we've ever had before. And that's a tremendous testimony that we can share with the world. But again, I want you to see that the big picture here is that whatever you're going through in life, whatever circumstance you're encountering in life, God's grace is all sufficient. Now the first thing I want you to see with me this morning is the problems that come our way. The problems that come our way. He talks about that in the first seven verses. As Christians, we should never get the idea that we are immune from problems. Some people seem to think that if they get in church, all of a sudden, all of their problems in life are going to magically disappear. Some unbelievers come to faith in Christ thinking that when they walk out of church the morning after they've made their public profession of faith that life is going to suddenly take a dramatic turn for the better. Others think that if they're living for God it'll place some kind of protective shield or or bubble over them that will keep them safe from all problems in life. Folks, that is not the Christianity that the Bible talks about. The Bible never suggests the idea that believers will be exempt from problems and life's difficulties. In fact, you'll remember what Jesus told his disciples before he left them. He said, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. As we look at our text, we find that even the great apostle Paul himself was no stranger to problems. I want you to notice here the spiritual privileges that Paul experienced. In verses 2 to 4, Paul shares with us a special privilege that he had been given. Now read those verses with me beginning in verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven and I know such a man, whether in body or out of the body I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. 
Paul was describing a remarkable and unusual experience he had encountered 14 years earlier. Now, could this be a reference to Acts chapter 14? Maybe so. You see, if you do a chronology of Paul's life and lay the book of Acts down alongside of the various letters that he wrote, you would find in Acts chapter 14 that on his first missionary journey, uh, Paul had gone into the regions of Iconium and Lystra. And there in Lystra, the crowds rose up against him and they turned on him and they stoned him to death and they drug him outside of the city and they left him for dead. And if you run a chronology on Paul's letter here, it would take you back to, a, to around that time approximately. So maybe it's that moment in time that Paul is talking about here when he went to heaven. For a certain amount of time, he was absent from the body and present with the Lord. Now, the, Paul, the point I want to make is that Paul's experience put him in a very special class. You'll remember what was going on there behind the, the, the context behind 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul was having to debate with a group of false teachers who were trying to lead the church family astray. And they were boasting about all these kinds of spiritual experiences that they had had. And they were trying to put Paul down that he was not on the same level that they were on. His enemies, they were claiming that they were spiritually superior to him. And so Paul responds to their boasting by saying that if anybody had reason to boast, if anybody had reason to glory, surely it was him. After all, not just any Christian can make the claim and be truthful about it that he's gone to heaven and back. Now folks, let me say at this point that Paul is only sharing about this experience to counter his detractors. He never suggests that believers should try to seek such experiences. In fact, nowhere in the Bible do you see believers being admonished to seek after such special revelations and visions. In fact, if you study further, you would find that Paul had indicated to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that he commended them to the word of God's grace that was able to strengthen them. In other words, what Paul commended to fellow believers was a simple study of God's word to help them grow. And that's consistent with what we find in the rest of the Bible. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Bible says, All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is the Bible, it is the scripture that equips us, not special visions. We don't need to try to add other things onto or on top of the Bible. Scripture alone is sufficient. And I want you to notice also that Paul didn't even share this experience for 14 years uh, until in this present context he was challenged about not having anything special on his resume. 
And only then did he share this. Now how different that is from people today. Look at all the books out today on people who say that they've supposedly had some type of of near-death experience and they've been to heaven and back and they're all too eager to get a publishing company to publish their book and they go on all the talk shows and they want to be interviewed about it. I hope you'll try to be very skeptical about those kinds of books. Even the ones that right now seem to be gaining a lot of traction. Be very skeptical about that kind of thing. If you want to know about heaven, simply read your Bible. And also remember that even the devil, as we read last week in chapter 11, can disguise himself as an angel of light. To try to deceive people. And so be very discerning when it comes to extra biblical sources. No matter how credible they may seem at the moment. Now I want you to notice that Paul says here he was not even allowed to speak of such things as he saw. That reminds me of Deuteronomy 29.29 that says the secret things belong to our Lord God alone. God doesn't tell us everything in life that we might be fascinated about. God tells us rather what we need to know for salvation and maturity. But as Paul goes on to testify in this chapter, even a man like himself with such a legitimate experience as he relates here points out that he was not exempt from problems. And folks, that's the application point for us today. If a man of Paul's spiritual character was not immune from problems, neither should we expect to be immune from problems. And for, as you look further, you see the personal problems that Paul encountered. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, Paul gives a description of his problems. He says there, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. I want you to notice here two words that Paul used that give us an idea of the kind of problem he was encountering. Notice the first word, the word thorn. He speaks of a thorn in the flesh. Now in the Bible, two different words are used for a thorn. There's the word akanta, which may speak of a a thorny shrub. Hebrews 6.8 speaks of that which bear thorns and briars. That's the kind of thorn you would expect to see if you went to a rose bush. But then there's a second word, scallops, which is only used one time in the New Testament, namely right here. And now granted, scallops can refer to some little insignificant thorn, but usually it refers to something like a large stake. It was even used to refer to a stake or even a spear that you would use to impale somebody and take their very life. And that's the word, the the stronger, the more dramatic word that Paul uses here when he says there is given to me a thorn in the flesh. 
And then another word I want you to notice is buffet. The word buffet is a strong word that means to beat with the fist. J.B. Phillips translates it to harass me. Another translation says uh, to bruise me. Now there's been a lot of speculations and theories about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Some say it was some type of optical deficiency that he suffered. Others have suggested that it was things like maybe malaria or epilepsy or migraine headaches or even insomnia that Paul's referring to here. Others have suggested Paul's talking about a person or people. Now if I had to make a conclusion or draw a conclusion about a physical problem, I'd have to agree with those that say it's probably malaria. Some believe Paul came down with malaria while in some of the warmer coastal regions that he visited on the first missionary journey around Pamphylia. That was a region that was known in the first century uh, to be a place where you're likely to come down with malaria. Now supposedly once you have malaria there's really no cure or a a difficult cure today and back in ancient times there was really no cure and, and from time to time it would flare up. You would go through these miserable times where you would probably feel like you had to get better in order to die. You'd develop chills and fatigue and weakness and it affects the eyesight. And so some scholars see the thorn in the flesh that reoccurred from time to time in Paul's life probably being malaria. Now notice what Paul said about that. If it was malaria affecting eyesight in Galatians 4, Paul says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Was Paul speaking hypothetically or was he speaking literally? Obviously, if he's speaking literally, there was some kind of eye problem. And and, and then you get to the end of the book of Galatians. and, And the book of Galatians is a letter that's charged with so much emotion... Uh, just like the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, because the, the Galatians seem to have wandered away from the simple gospel of faith in Christ. And so at the end of the book of Galatians, Paul says, See what large letters I am writing to you with so that you'll know that this letter comes from my hand. You see, his normal practice was to dictate a letter and a secretary would write it down. But Paul tells the Galatians, look at the large letters that I'm writing the book of Galatians with that gives you a a tip-off to the fact that I'm writing this myself, not using a secretary. Again, that would seem to indicate that maybe Paul experienced eye problems, which again malaria would cause. But it's important to understand that his thorn in the flesh might not have been physical at all. It might have been something spiritual instead. In fact, 
When he uses the term a messenger of Satan, the word he uses is the word angelos. Now what word do we get from the word angelos? We get the word angel from angelos, which literally means a messenger. And in the context of saying a messenger, an angelos of Satan, what would an angel of Satan be? A demon. A demon. So it could be that in places like Corinth, where Paul was constantly facing uh, opposition and persecution, a demonic power might have been working through the human opposition there at Corinth. Now in any case, neither the Holy Spirit nor Paul disclosed what the thorn was except to let us know that it was very painful and it was very distressing to him. Folks, it reminds us that there are problems that we encounter in life. Nobody is immune from difficulty or problems or trials or tribulations in life. And you and I as believers need to understand that. Sometimes believers will say, Pastor, I must be doing something wrong in my life because I'm going through all these trials and tribulations. What have I done wrong? Folks, it may not be that you're doing anything wrong. In fact, it may be that you're doing something right. Jesus said, if they've opposed me, the servant's not greater than the master. If you're experiencing trials or tribulations or difficulty in your Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, you're in good company because the Lord Jesus himself experienced it and the Apostle Paul experienced it. Nobody's immune. I don't care how much you grow in your Christian faith. We've got to remember we live in a fallen world. You know, we teach the children to sing, this is my father's world. And yes, God created this world, but since Genesis 3, the fall, it's dramatically different now than the world God created. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, all of creation is groaning, crying out for the day of redemption. We live in a fallen world. And we've got an enemy. Are you going through problems in life? Don't think it's strange. It's normal. As somebody said, most believers, if they'll really stop and be honest with themselves, they're either going into a trial, they're in one now, or they're coming out of one. I mean, that's life. And it was even the Apostle Paul's experience. On a lighter note, Somebody wrote, they said, you know that you're in trouble when a black cat crosses your path and collapses dead. <laughs> you know you're in trouble when that bird singing outside your bedroom window is a vulture. You know you're in trouble when your children's school calls to surrender <laughs> or you know that you're in trouble when the pest exterminator crawls up underneath your home and never comes out 
read about a husband that said to his wife, you always carry my uh, photograph in your handbag to the office. Why do you do that? And the wife said, well, I do it because when there's a problem, no matter how impossible, I look at your picture and the problem disappears. He said, how sweet and kind that is, darling. And she said, no, you don't understand. Whatever difficulty I'm going through at work, I take out your picture and I say, man, compared to you, this is nothing. Seriously, though, there are the thorns and the things that buffet us. The great, eminent Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, one of our own, a Baptist, he said of Paul's thorn, it is a blessing to the rest of us that we do not know the particular affliction that so beset Paul. Each of us has some splinter or thorn in the flesh, in fact, perhaps several at a time. Each has their own particular thorns in life, the things that buffet us and bruise us. And oftentimes they're not like little things, little uh, nuisances. Uh, Oftentimes it's like a dagger in our heart that we go through. Those things are difficult to experience. They're hard to encounter. Now the painfulness and the hardness of Paul's thorn in the flesh is evident here in verse 8 where we read that he sought the Lord three times in prayer for the removal of the thorn. Now the tense of the phrase that it might depart from me indicates that Paul was praying that it might be removed from his life once and for all. God forever get rid of this in my life. So whatever it was, it was certainly intense enough that Paul... Wanted it gone. And that says something about how painful and distressing it was to him. Now like Paul, what do we do? We get in those valleys of life and what is always the right thing to do? It's always the right thing to do to cry out to God. 1 Peter 5 tells us to cast all of our care upon him for he cares for us. Folks, it's always the right thing to do. To go to God and lay our burdens at his feet. It's always the right thing to do. In fact, even the psalmist in Psalm 34, 17 said, The righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. God can help us and deliver us. But I I want you to see here, doesn't mean that God always will. At least at the moment. You see, God's answers are sometimes not a yes. Sometimes God's answer is a no or a not yet. And that's still an answer. An answer from God doesn't have to be a yes to be an answer from God. God might be telling you no, at least not yet. That's still an answer from God. Now notice not only the problems that come our way, but secondly, the purpose that controls our way. Pick up reading with me in verse 7. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If there's a lesson that we need to learn about the trials of life, it is that God always has a plan and a purpose in them. Folks, here is one truth of which we can be absolutely convinced. Nothing can come our way, nothing can happen in our life that hasn't, first of all, gotten the approval of God. The reason God didn't remove this thorn in the flesh from the Apostle Paul is that God had a purpose in it. Now, notice closer with me what Paul said about the problem in his life. He talks about the thorn that was bestowed upon him. Notice carefully in verse 7 that Paul says, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh. This thorn had been given to Paul. And he describes this thorn in the flesh as the messenger of Satan to buffet me. You know who I think of in the Old Testament? I think of Job. In the book of Job, Satan was the direct cause of all of Job's difficulties, but it was God that allowed it. Same idea here. The thorn came to Paul through a messenger of Satan. Perhaps a demon is being referred to. But it was God who allowed it. Folks, what we see here is that God is so completely sovereign, which you don't even need to add those qualifiers. Sovereign is complete. But God is so completely sovereign that he can even use the devil for his purposes. Understand something that that we need to realize as Christians we do not believe in the philosophy known as dualism. We don't believe in that. In dualism the person says that there are two sovereigns. Now again by very definition of the word sovereign you can't have two of them. But nonetheless the dualist says there's two sovereigns kind of fighting it out in the universe. There's God on the one hand, Satan on the other hand. And there are two sovereigns, two equal sovereigns. And they're battling it out and as believers we're just kind of sitting back and we're hoping that God wins. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. There's only one sovereign. And that's the Lord our God. And if God so ordains it, Satan is nothing more than a tool in God's hands to carry out God's purposes. Now sometimes our troubles are human in nature. We're the cause for our own problems on occasion. For instance, maybe you've made a a bad decision. Disobedience to God can lead to troubles. If many are honest, they would have to admit that they've brought a lot of their problems upon themselves. You know who I think of in the New Testament? I think of the prodigal son 
In the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15, he went to his dad and said, Dad, I want all of my inheritance now. It's like he was saying to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead because I want right now what's coming to me when you die. The father distributed all his goods to him. And the Bible says that son went away into a far country and with riotous living, he squandered all of his dad's wealth. He ended up broke. He was famished. Basically homeless. And and he went to the Gentiles and he he hired himself out to, to be a pig farmer. Something that would have been abhorrent to a Jewish boy. That's how bad off he was. Why did he get bad off like that? Because of his own decision. Quite frankly, that's why some are going through some of the things in life they are. Decisions they've made. But sometimes our troubles are heavenly in nature. And what I mean by that is our problems are allowed or arranged or appointed by God. They're sent by God into our lives. Now folks, here's an interesting thing to keep in mind. Now, I'm, I'm glad, I, I don't recall that anybody's ever told me that this here, but I've, I've heard in churches before, Sunday school teacher comes to you and says, Pastor, I love my class, except for that one man in my class. He is a thorn in my flesh. I wish he'd get out of my class and go somewhere else. Or pastors get together and say, boy, I love my church, except for one or two guys. Man, I wish they'd leave. But here's something you need to consider. Maybe God sent that person into your class or your church. God's got a purpose of that person being there that you have to continually deal with. He's got a lesson for you to learn in that. Now you might ask, why would God send problems my way? I want you to notice that the thorn was beneficial to him. Paul explains why he was given a thorn in the flesh. We read in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Lest Paul become elated, conceited, proud, lifted up. Paul says God gave him a thorn in the flesh that would have the effect of pinning him or nailing him back down to the earth. Now I want you to understand the beauty of the language here. Paul says he was lifted up in this heavenly experience. He was lifted up to the third heaven. First heaven is where the birds fly. Second heaven where the, where the planets are in their orbits. The third heaven, the abode of God. I was lifted up to the third heaven. But God gave me a thorn in the flesh that served to nail me back down to the earth. He confesses that it had been sent by God to him to keep him humble. Folks, with all that Paul experienced, I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. Wrote most of the books in our New Testament. Greatest theological mind that that we could even imagine. All these missionary journeys, all these travels, all these churches that he planted. 
such a tremendous Christian individual. I mean, when God got a hold of Saul, Rabbi Saul, on the road to Damascus and converted him and he became the Apostle Paul, I mean, God indeed got all of his heart and all of his mind. He was so dedicated to the Lord. Look at all the experiences that the Apostle Paul had. Somebody like him could become proud or conceited. But God gave him a thorn in the flesh to nail him back down to the earth, nail him back down to reality, and keep him humble. Now the purpose will uh, vary from person to person and need to need, but there's always a purpose behind the problems that God allows in our life. Listen to the words of this poem, The Divine Weaver. It says it well. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oftentimes he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget that he seeth the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas And explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand. As the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Even today tourists go over to Holland. And they visit the home of Corrie Ten Boom. You remember Corrie Ten Boom. Her family during World War II would hide out. Jews in their home. They would hide out Jews from the Nazis. Her home's now a museum. And one of Corey's favorite items is, a, is one picture in particular hanging on the wall. And, and actually it's, it's a needlepoint type portrait. And it's hung backwards on the wall and uh, the average observer goes in and sees it and, and all you see is this mass of meaningless threads hanging down from the back and, and you, I mean, it just looks like nothing. And, and Corey says, I have it that way on purpose because from my perspective, that's how I see a lot of the trials of my life. But on the other side is this beautiful portrait and it reminds me in life that I might see things and they don't make sense. But God from the other side, from the upper side, is weaving together a beautiful portrait of my life. We may not always understand the purpose of our problems, but God always has a purpose. And folks, based on Romans 8.28, we can be assured that in the life of a believer, God is working good. It's not saying everything is good, but it's saying God uses all things, even bad things, to work ultimate good in a believer's life. That's the assurance you and I have. Lastly, I want you to notice with me the promise that calms our way. Verses 9 and 10, Paul says there, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
When we're faced with a problem that, that, that we encounter in our life, when we're faced with a problem, we're given the wonderful promise that God's grace is always sufficient. Always. Now the words he said to me, God said to me, the tense is perfect, implying that every time Paul prayed, God came back repeatedly with the answer, my grace is sufficient. And so not only did the thorn in the flesh keep Paul nailed back down to the earth in humility, but the thorn in the flesh also kept Paul nailed to God's side in dependency. He was dependent upon God. Oftentimes, folks, it's not those mountaintops that we're on in life when we look up to God. Oftentimes, it's the valleys. It's when we're in the dark valleys in life and all we can see is it appears that we're hemmed in on every side and there's no way out. It's in those valleys in life that we go through that we look up to God. You know, it makes me wonder something. And this is me speaking, okay? I, I, I can't put a chapter and a verse with this to defend this. But I wonder sometimes if you're the type of person that tends to run off on your own and forget God and try your own solutions in life, it may be that God sends things your way to purposely keep you on your knees. And what do we find? While life is not without its problems, whatever the problem, God's grace is always sufficient. What does Paul say here about God's grace? First of all, that it is abundant grace. His grace is always sufficient. That word sufficient means that it is always more than the trial that you're going through. Whatever trial you're going through, God's grace is always enough and even more than enough to meet that trial with. His grace is sufficient. If you've ever read any of Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon's probably the most famous preacher the, the Baptist and the English-speaking world's ever produced. Charles Spurgeon used, loved to use graphic analogies and allegories in his sermons and comparisons. It's interesting that one he makes about this. He said he was riding home one evening after a heavy day's work, feeling weary and depressed, and this verse came to his mind, God saying, my grace is always Sufficient for thee. And in his mind, Spurgeon said that he immediately compared himself to a little fish in the Thames River. Apprehensive about drinking so many pints of water in the river each day. That somehow or another he might drink the Thames dry. And then the Thames River said to him, drink away little fish. Drink away. Drink away to your heart's content. My stream is sufficient for you. And then next he thought, a, a little, he thought of a little mouse in the granaries of Egypt, afraid that its daily nibbles might exhaust the supplies and cause the grain to disappear. And then he would starve to death. 
And then Joseph comes along and says, Cheer up, little mouse. Cheer up, my granaries are sufficient for you. And then he thought of a man climbing some high mountain to reach its lofty summit and fearing that his breathing might exhaust all of the oxygen in the atmosphere. And then the Creator booms his voice out of heaven saying, Breathe away, old man. Breathe away and fill your lungs. My atmosphere is more than sufficient for you. Whatever your trial, God's grace is sufficient. But not only is it abundant, not only is it sufficient, but I want you to notice lastly that it is available. The implication of God's promise here is that His sufficient grace is available to you. Do you need His grace today? His grace is available to you. Are you at a place in your life that you don't know which way to turn or what to do? God's grace is available. It's available for whatever you need and whenever you need it. Now I mentioned Corey Tenboom to you earlier. I think of the story that she tells when she was a little girl and she had witnessed so many of her friends and so many other children lose a dad or a mom or maybe lose both of their parents. And at one point in her life as a child, that really made Corey's heart anxious and troubled. And she talked to her dad about, on, about it on one occasion. And Corey's father said to her, Corey, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when we get on that train, when do I give you your ticket? She said, well, Daddy, you give me the ticket when we're boarding the train. He said, would you say then that I give you your ticket when you need it? She said, yeah. He said, then Corey, you can be assured that whatever you go through in life as a Christian, God will give you what you need when you need it. Maybe not before. Maybe not before, which might cause your little heart to be anxious at times. But nonetheless, when you need it, God gives you what you need. Somebody has wisely said, God is seldom early, but He's never late. Amen? He gives us what we need when we need it. Available grace. Now today, is there some trial or difficulty that you're encountering in your life? Folks, instead of trying to avoid it or simply get out of it, is there a lesson that God is trying to teach you? As you've heard me say to you on multiple occasions, don't waste a good trial. God might have to send you another one to try to teach you the same thing. What's God trying to teach you through that trial? Through that thorn in the flesh? It may be that God is trying to get you to make some type of adjustment, either minor or major in your life. Second thing you need to realize is something James talks about. 
Paul doesn't mention it here, but James does in James 1.5. James says when we're going through these valleys, when we're going through these trials, we need to ask God for wisdom and God will grant it. You see, a lot of times in the valley, we don't see the other side. We need, we need God's perspective. We need God's wisdom to make it through. And James tells us God will give it to us. God will give it to us. I also want you to realize that whether God chooses to remove the burden you're carrying or leave the burden you're carrying, His grace is sufficient. He'll walk through the valley with you. As the hymn Amazing Grace points out, He will be your shield and defender as long as life endures. And that's one of the blessings of being a Christian. You see, if you're not a Christian, you can't claim to have God at your side as you go through a valley. You're on your own. But as a Christian, God's word promises us that when his children get in a valley, get in a trial, have a thorn in the flesh, God is there with his children. I can't think of a better motivator to come to faith in Christ. Because folks, Christ provides for us not only throughout eternity, but even now. Again, he may not remove it. But he'll give you the strength to go through it. Do you need to come to Christ this morning? Maybe there's never been a time in your life that you have been regenerated. That you've been saved. You never recall there's ever been a time in your life that you would say, I know that God made me new. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If that's never happened to you, maybe you want to come forward this morning and say, Pastor, pray with me. I need to be converted. I want to have that blessed assurance that my life is in God's hands and that I'm never alone. Others who have made that decision, nevertheless, you may be going through a difficulty in your life. Perhaps this morning you sense an urging in your life to come forward in a public way. You know, most of the time in life, there's not that urging to make a type of public decision. But sometimes in life, there's that urging we sense. We just want to go to a a public altar and cry out to God. And maybe you sense that need this morning. You come forward. Others that desire a church home where other believers can pray for you and encourage you as you go through that thorn in the flesh. We'd love to be your church home.